Welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hey guys, we have a terrific guest for you today, a terrific life coach who is really helpful and has a lot of wisdom, but for the sake of privacy, we have bleeped out the names of companies and people. So just wanted to give you that heads up. So welcome to Rich in Life. This is my first recording for 2022. So happy new year. Happy new year. Yeah, I think that by the time this airs, most people will be have given up on their resolutions. I'm sure everybody will. By the time this airs, it'll be everybody, not most people. So what better person to have on than a life coach? And I didn't want just any life coach because, you know, we had a whole list of people. I wanted one that was seasoned. I wanted one that that I actually used. And so I'm admitting that I used my next guest, who is Ellen Adis, and she is a certified life coach. And she now works for a nonprofit organization that enables women to earn and help support their families. But before she was with this company, who is where she works now, she was an independent life coach who worked with me for a long time. And from what I understand, I think I was her biggest career challenge, not just by being crazy in the head, but also you, I happen you to, wish you wish <laughs> I wish I, Oh, I do. I'm mad that I'm not. I also happen to be her cousin. So, you know, that's just another interesting tidbit that we'll get to later on in the program, in the show, we're going to talk about, you know, our time growing up, but first I want to know, how did you even start with, you were such an excellent life coach. I mean, We started talking when my mom was going through the Alzheimer's thing. And, you know, obviously, you know that I went to Alzheimer's support group. I was going through to my psychiatrist. I was on medication. And yet still, after I would get off my telephone call with you, you seem to always put things into perspective. How did you wind up at, how did you go from being such an independent working with everyone to now being more concentrated into a nonprofit organization that mainly helps women? I mean, that's discrimination. First of all, (laughs) you're being very kind uh, to say that I helped you. I don't know. Um, You went through some heavy stuff there. I ended up Uh, having the privilege of working for a not-for-profit because I put myself out there. And that goes to the question of resilience, which you mentioned to me that you wanted to really talk about. Um, Part of resilience is having a little bit of courage to put yourself out there. Even if you don't know exactly what you want, you know you want to be good, you know you want to bring value, you know you want to learn. You can't do any of those things if you're not out there in the world trying to put your value out there. Um, Whatever you can do that could help somebody, bring it out there. And that's what I did for years. You did it. And, uh, you know, when you say that you are flattered and you can't believe it, I can give examples of how you helped me. I mean, one example is my mom was deteriorating and it was slowly and with every deterioration, I was so upset and nothing was helping me. And I remember one conversation you told me, Richie, do you think it could be any worse? And I said, no, how it can't get worse. And you go, Rich, think about it. Tell me. Can it get worse? And I started to think about it. I started to think about my mom who was losing her memory, couldn't verbalize anything. And I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my goodness. Let's say she had a pain in her stomach. Let's say, God forbid, something started happening to her body and she would get cancer. But before I could even say the word cancer, you said, stop right there. Now, you know, and you know, ever since then, I remember thinking, as long as she's not in pain. And so that really helped me. There were so many things I remember of how you helped me um, that, you know, I don't want to mention them all because a lot of it is private, but you had a lot of insight. And I think the reason why is you're also very wise, which I want to get to something else. So many people are life coaches, Ellen. It almost seems too easy to be a life coach. It's almost like when women come into my store after shopping for 10 years and then hand me a card and say, yeah, I'm I'm a stylist now. 
I'm like, okay, it's like, you just need a card. Is it too, how do you, how does, I know you have to go through a certification and I know there are many people um, that are life coaches that we both know, and I'm sure some of them are wonderful, but I think it's just something that's too easy to, to be. Do you agree? Do you want to comment that, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, There are a lot of doctors and lawyers out there. There are a lot of mothers and fathers. There are a lot of hairstylists. There are a lot of business people. If you want it to be easy, there are easy ways to get a little card that says you're certified. But what does that actually mean? All they're doing is giving you building blocks. They're giving you flat knowledge. It's not really dynamic knowledge. In order to get dynamic knowledge, you have to be out there and get experience. I I can't speak about experience enough. Two, Two ways. Number one, life experience. The more roads you've traveled, the more experiences, the more love and loss and achievements and failures you've had, you learn from those things. And as far as being a life coach, Yes, there are a lot of schools, but where the the you really you really make your you know get in in your mode is how often are you coaching? How much of yourself are you putting out there? I remember when I first started, I I made sure to pick a a, a good school. At the time, my choice was NYU, and I went there for a year, and I got and I got good advice advice. The program's much different now, but I got great advice. And the advice was to follow the science. Don't follow the touchy-feely kind of stuff. So I followed the science and I learned other things. I studied emotional intelligence. I studied uh, um, neuroscience a little bit to understand how everything works. But I took any job I could. There are no life coach jobs. I mean, if you type in life coach now, um, you'll get 14,000 hits for jobs. When you click on the job, it's you're basically being a caretaker. You're being, you know, they're not really life coaching jobs. It's just a buzzword. But I knew that I needed experience. I knew I didn't know anything after I graduated from that program. I knew about life. I had raised four children. I, I'd gone through a lot of different things, but life coaching, what was it? What was my value out there? I knew I was good at nurturing people, but life coaching isn't about giving advice. Life coaching is about uh, collaborating with a client to go through a process so they could see everything in front of them. Okay, so they could- Can you explain, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I really want you to explain I, it kind of in layman's terms, what- exactly is a life coach. We know what a psychiatrist is. We know what a psychologist is. You know, one dispenses medicine, one doesn't dispense medicine. Then there's the therapist. What exactly is a life coach and where do they fall? About 30 years ago, uh, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, he was the head of the psychiatry uh, uh, department in the medical school. And he I think it was the medical school, but he came up with this brilliant idea. He said, psychology and psychiatry has been based on, let's find people who are not well and make them well. He said, maybe we have it backwards. Maybe we should figure out how to teach people how to be happy. You know, maybe we shouldn't be going and fixing people, just learn how to promote happiness in our field. And that became known as positive psychology. And and he launched that. It was really brilliant. Out of the positive psychology movement grew coaching. And it started in tennis, where where, uh, uh, somebody was coaching a tennis player. And again, it's about 30 years ago. And it really was around the way he was thinking about the game, not about telling him what to do, how to swing. It was the mental game. And from there, it just grew. And it, there's executive coaching. They're now, there are spiritual coaches. There are all kinds of coaches, wellness coaches. If, if you're trying to help somebody, they call you a coach. But the field of coaching itself and the way life coaches, where life coaches fall, that's how it started. It was an outgrowth of the positive psychology movement. And basically, a coach is there to help you 
be effective by keeping you focused, by making you aware so that you're really in the moment. It's mm -hmm. not, a, 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 I don't tell people you should do this, you should do that. What do I know? I know nothing. What, I'm going to tell somebody how to live their life. What do I know? I'm not living inside their mind and their body. But when appropriate, I could share an experience. If it's useful to the person, they could draw something from there. I could ask people questions. I could under, try to understand what their strengths are. And it's really taking a person through this period of discovery. You taught me something that was... Um that I still, and I mean, we stopped coaching. I, my, mom, my mom's been gone about, what, eight years? So it had to be about eight, nine years ago. You taught me something that I still live by. When I try to say things like, I don't want to have anxiety, I don't want to be mad at my kids, you taught me, never say, I don't want. I want. So I learned to say, please give me the patience that I need for my children. Let me be more easygoing. Every, you taught me to repeat things in a positive way instead of saying, oh, I don't want to be this way. Please don't let me be so you know, irritated all the time. Do you remember that? Or uh, that must be part of because your coaching. This is a small shift. This is the blending of positive psychology and, and coaching. But it's a small shift and it's all part of reframing what we see. If we tell ourselves, I don't want this, I don't want that, it's not filling you with a sense of gratitude. Right. Think about it. If you go through the day <laughs> saying to yourself, oh, why didn't uh, uh, I get this? Why didn't, why didn't this happen to me? Why can't I have what that guy had? You're going to be a miserable human being for all of your life. And that's going to be your reality. Well, where another person can say, thank you for all the blessings you've sent me. My arms are open to welcome the ones you have coming, you know, that are on the way to me. Do you know, it changes the whole way you look at humanity. It changes the way you look at everything. Now, you know, again, I'm bringing resilience in because everybody mentions gratitude as one of the building blocks of resilience and happiness and everything. And it's true because it's all the way you look at things. There are so many, and this, this is what a coach does. There are so many realities that are all true in front of a person. They're all true, every single one of those things. So what, what are you gonna focus on? Are you gonna focus on the thing that makes you miserable? Or It just boggles my mind that people can go through the day and they have, they can't even count their blessings, but they're focusing on the thing that's making them miserable. And that becomes the reality. And they drag that around with them, not only for a minute, not only for an hour. I know people that will drag it around for every day of their life. When I worked in fi the financial services industry, in a, and sometimes I still do, coaching young uh, uh, people on how to be more productive and get out of their own head. Many times, a couple of appointments would cancel, and the agent would just be in a funk for three weeks because it's all based on how much you produce. So if, you, if you're a couple of sales meetings, let's say you have three big sales meetings scheduled for the week, two of them cancel, you're going to get in your head and it's going to ruin you for three weeks. I showed them, I counted with one, okay, you were in a funk for three weeks. How often does this happen? Oh, every two, three months. I said, okay, so every two, three months, so that's six times a year, five, five <laughs> times a year, you're at a commission for three weeks. That's 15 weeks. So basically. It's counterproductive. For three, what you're doing four is months, you're, you're not producing anything. I said, if you were in your A game for those three months, how much more money would you be making? And, you know, when they started to realize how they're shooting themselves in the foot. So go back to what you said. Talking, you said I. I you taught me I how to spin myself, things in a positive way. So now, but, and you know, you obviously know me not just because you're my cousin, but we've also had many conversations, you know, during our life coaching sessions. And you know, for me, everything was negative. Everything was negative, and I, you know, I even when I tried to be positive, I would, 
I would say it in a negative way. Let me not be so depressed. I just don't want to be depressed. And you taught me how to say, you taught me how to spin everything to a way that makes me want to do it. So when I wake up and I say today, I, you know, I want the patience today. I really want to have patience and I want to be more easygoing and I want to be more loving and live in the moment with my family. Because you know that I get distracted easily. I'm one of those guys that you just said, you know, I'll sit in traffic for 10 minutes and that will ruin half my day and I'll kill everybody around me. And, you know, I, I know that and I'm changing and I have changed, but it's, it's that kind of thinking that has helped me kind of become better. Because again, when we spoke about New Year's resolutions, everyone's got resolutions. Like I want to lose weight. I want to go to the gym. I want to eat better. I want to be better. You know, this has always been my resolution. I just want to be better every year, every day, every month. I've never made a new year's resolution. Never. I don't believe in that. I consistently eat the same healthy food. I consistently eat the same junk food, the same chocolate, and I eat it consistently the same amount. I do everything consistently. So I've never made that because you accept the things you can't change. So there's wisdom is that. So I have, okay, so that's good to know. So, you know, getting back to it, like, you know, my goal is to just be better. And I, you know, I know that once a day leaves, I have now another day to start and to be better. Like this morning, you know, I got into a fight with my daughter. I felt that she, I felt bad. She left, uh, you know, upset. I, you know, hugged her. I kissed her. I said, I'll have a surprise for her when she comes home. But I did, I snapped. And that goes against what I say every single morning, help me to have more patience. So getting back to the new year's resolution thing, why do people make them? And are they important, Ellen? Are they even important? Or it's just a gimmick that they made up for new years? Because as a life coach, you must know that the challenges that people go through are daily, minutely. I go through them every minute. You know, life is dynamic. Nothing is static. You could set a goal for yourself and something can happen that could change everything in the next moment. So how do you make them bulletproof? It's really goes deeper. It's not about it's not about setting goals that are two dimensional. It's about things that you said. It's about becoming better, better. How do you want to be better? Um what do you want to change? But really from a deep level. But you have, you have to know yourself, but you really have to know. Yes. Like you have to know. Like I know I'm controlling. I want to control everyone all the time. I know that I'm extremely impatient. I know. So when I ask for Thank patience. Thank God you have such a charming personality and a good sense of humor because otherwise people would have nothing to do with you. But I, I don't want to have anything to do with me. I look in the mirror in the morning. I'm like, oh, fuck you again. I'm like, I don't know how to get away. I'm sick of myself because I can't get out of my head. That's part of the problem. So it's funny, like people that have New Year's resolutions or want to make them, I know it's a gimmick, whatever. The thing I tell them, my advice is set the bar so low that you won't fail. Say this year, the whole year, I want to lose five pounds. Now we know. But it has to be specific, Richie. People don't realize if you set a goal, I want to lose weight. It's so general. You're not committing to anything. If you want to say, I'm going to eat this many calories a day, or I'm going to going to track my calories every day, or I'm going to work out for this many hours. And these are the days I'm going to work out. And this is the gym I'm going to go to. Then it's very specific. It's much harder to ignore. But if you make a general goal, it's like saying, I'm going to make my business more profitable. Well, how are you going to do it? I don't know. I'm just going to make it more profitable. Well, if you don't get down to all the specifics, how are you going to, how are you going to move your business forward? Same thing with a goal. You have to be so specific. And you're right about not biting off too much. You know, that the old thing, it, you could move at a snail's pace, but if you keep moving in the same direction, for sure, you're going to get where you're going. So and I right. find, and not only not only that, I find that they overachieve their goal. In other words, they don't have the anxiety of having to lose the 50 pounds where they give up. They're saying, yeah, it's only five pounds. But meanwhile, at the end of it, they probably lost 15 or 20 pounds. You know, it's just, it's the pressure. I find it's the pressure. So I want to ask you, how, how would somebody know if they could even benefit from a life coach? How would somebody well, know that? If they're 
if they're very, very happy with everything in their life and themselves 100% and there's nothing they want to change, then mm-hmm. they certainly don't need a life coach. Well, if we find somebody like that, I want them on the podcast. <laughs> <All> <laughs> I right. can make them miserable in two minutes. <laughs> Trust me. That'll I can break their challenge. spirit. Yeah, no, I can break their spirit in a minute. Um, so, okay. So now I we have that. How does somebody even choose a life coach? How do you choose it? It's not like the gym. You know, I go to the gym and if they want to give me a trainer, I want the hottest trainer with the best body. I'm like, lift up your shirt. I want to see a six pack. No six pack, no training. Right. So what you want to do is you want to ask a few questions. You could ask them um, where, where were they certified? You could ask them, why should I hire you? There are a hundred life coaches. If the person can't answer the question, clearly not the life coach that has enough experience for you. So, you know, here's a question that I'm dying to ask. Do you think people should hold it against a professional if their own life is not going well? You know, I know life coaches that have their own problems and can't seem to deal with them, but yet they're a life coach. Can you kind of, you know, how does, where does that fall in terms of, you know, separating the professional from their personal? The if... Like, let me continue. Okay. So I do know that there are people that can be great trainers and know everything about the body and exercise and be completely out of shape. I don't want to deal with them. No, that's, that's a hard sell for me. Right. So it's the same thing with coaching. You know, I had somebody on the podcast that was a, um, uh, she sets people up. What is it? That's your matchmaker, but she's divorced. She was divorced. She didn't get remarried. She's living with someone. So like, but I'm maybe, not saying. But maybe, no, but you see, it depends. Some things we can't control. We can't control all the people in our lives. Sometimes things are not working out and it's just due to things beyond our control. It, it, I suppose that the right answer to that question is everything can't be perfect with everybody. Everybody has issues. Everybody with somebody in their family at some point, somewhere. So if you have somebody that's a coach and all their relationships are bad, run for the hills. <laughs> if you have somebody um, you know, that, that uh, is going through some difficult times, but they're being very careful, not you shouldn't know about it. Mm, a coach should not be giving off those vibes. And if they are giving off those vibes, again, you know, (laughs) I have never met a human being that went through life without having some issues at some point. But why do some people deal with it so much better than others that people like me need, you know, three therapists and then other people can go through these things and, and get through it gracefully? First of all, you're a highly sensitive person. You're a creative, you're enormously talented. And that comes with some, you know, other sensitivities that, that maybe you need extra support. So I doesn't mean there's you. something wrong with you. You're, you know, why? So if you could, if you could afford to go to three psychiatrists or three, uh, a coach, a psychiatrist, a counselor, a therapist, uh, do hot yoga. If you need everything and you can afford it. So what's wrong with it? If it's working for you, I think that not, people, we're not all the same. I Even understand. identical twins are not the same. Right. So give yourself some slack. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I will say, and I talk about it a lot on the podcast that I think investing in your emotional well-being is the best investment you can make. I've made the joke thousands of times that I've probably gone through a million dollars in therapy from the time I was 15 years old to my age today, you know, probably plop through a million through everything, but it was the best investment I made because I see things so much clearer now. And with the help of everybody and including you, I'm able to cut other people's slack. And you know that from our sessions. And I know you can't talk about it, but I've cut people's slack that, you know, I'm not happy with. And to not get aggravated, I think is one of the most important things is to not get aggravated by your surroundings, to not feel like you're inadequate in a community or in a neighborhood or in your family. There are so many things at which I want to, which I want to ask you, what, what is probably the number one or the top two things that you find people have issues with when they come to you or in general, is it always financial? 
in in no it's it's never financial i'm not a business specialist i am not uh you know i have common sense i've been exposed to business but that's not my thing i'm i'm not somebody that's going to tell somebody what to do with their business i'm not somebody that's going to tell anybody what to do with with depression or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I turn people away. A lot of people refer to me because I'm not the one that could bring them value. They need a different kind of professional. So, so for the company that, for the organization that you work for, it is a nonprofit organization that enables women to help and earn and support their families. But that's not necessarily correct. what you do for the organization. For the organization, you well, are I'm, a life coach. I'm working with, no, I'm working with, with women who want some clarity and some want to enter the workforce. Some are in college, some are going to graduate school, some are um, opening up little businesses, some are, but they need support. They need clarity. They need to know next steps. They need to have a sounding board. They need, some of them need more basic things. Some of them just need a little bit of hand-holding support. Have some things them, changed drastically from before COVID to post-COVID, pre-COVID, post-COVID? I think it's changed for everybody in the world. I'm saying for you as a coach, a certified coach, because you know we both live within the same community and we're cousins. So we know what's going on. I mean, between the polarization and the division of this country, and, you know, people are succeeding, people are falling through the cracks due to, you know, the economy and businesses are closing and it's, it's, it, it must be very hard for people. What seems to be the biggest issue you're hearing about? The biggest issue is how to earn a living and raise children and be a wife uh, and do it in a way that I can, that will honor the other things in my life it's it, i'll tell you every single person i've ever coached some personal part of their life will come out they'll ask an opinion or something and i because people are human beings and if you're good at establishing trust with somebody which is a hallmark of a of a good coach also they're going to open up a little bit um, and you have to know how to react to those things. But the biggest challenge is how to reinvent yourself or how to start. And it also goes back to resilience. Could we talk about that for a minute? Because Yes, a- because I know that's something you've always told me as well, resilience. So let's talk about that. Tell let's me talk about it, because especially now. You have to. You have to be resilient. What does resilience mean? Resilience means that you're able to embrace change and keep moving forward. So how does somebody do that? It starts from the time you're a child. If if you had parents that, that did everything for you, chances are you're no matter what you're presenting to the world, your resilience is untested. And it's a little scary when you're faced with something in life for the first time that you'll have to rely on yourself because you never did anything for yourself it was all laid out for you and this has nothing to do with economics you could have money you could not have money once when a child is little how do they build confidence and you know how important confidence is because if uh, once you get to be a teenager and you're facing peer pressure and all kinds of bad decisions if you're not confident you're going to go with the crowd so if the crowd's using all kinds of drugs, you're going to use all kinds of drugs, or you're going to use alcohol, or you're going to use uh, something else. How do you build confidence in children? You have to let them fall down because they're going to bounce back up. You look at a baby, a baby will fall down literally when they're learning to walk a thousand times in a day. Do you see them stop for a second? No, they get right, they literally bounce back up and they start running again. And you're looking at them and your heart's gonna like fall out of your chest because you know the speed they're going, they're gonna fall smack on their face, but you have to let them, you know, they're gonna fall, they're gonna learn, they're gonna get better. And then they're gonna get better. They're gonna feel confident. When a child feels like they're part of the family, 
They're part of the decision-making process, that they can make a difference in their own life. They feel confident. They don't feel helpless. They don't feel anxiety-ridden. Look, today, kids are so depressed. Look at the world. People are depressed. They're anxiety-ridden because nobody likes to feel like they can't control the future. Like they don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know what to expect. But if you raise a child to learn that, look, we don't know what's coming. We know the sun's going to rise tomorrow. We know that you can think for yourself. We know you have two hands. We know you can figure things out because you're smart. That calms the child down. So the child's four years old, child learns to make their bed. Do you know how that builds confidence in a child? If you're doing everything for your children, you think you're doing them a favor? You're not. Child makes a bed. They, they, They have to earn everything they want. They learn they have to pick up their toys at the end of the day. They learn they have to do their homework. They learn they have to do certain chores from the time they're little. Brad, are you listening? I want to make sure he's listening. Brad, you're listening to all of this? thank there god our go. kids liked making their beds Look, but the problem I is i remake it and they get angry no but i have <laughs> i have grandchildren that from the time they're little i'm talking about three they help their mother around the house maybe their help is not so great but they hold their toys they put it away right. there i have one little granddaughter that started vacuuming because she wanted to when she was five years old she couldn't lift it up the stairs so her mother had to drag it this girl feels like she's on top of the world because she's part of the solution. She's part of the moving of this family forward. When the kids want something, they know they have to do what their parents tell them, whether it's homework, whether it's this, we do this, and then we'll go out for ice cream. Do you know what this does to kids when they learn how to earn what they want? They don't feel helpless. So this is such great advice for young parents. And especially for parents that are like me, that like things a certain way. I'm particular. My kids surprised me by making our bed and their bed. I let their bed stay the way it is. But when I look at my bed, when they leave, I fix it. I, you know, I make the pillows tight. Don't let them know that. (laughs) I know. Don't let them know that or just don't do it. So I think the advice you're giving to young parents today is excellent. Let your idiosyncrasies fall to the wayside and let your children take over, give them the confidence, let them make the beds, let them do things. Even if it's not, they're not doing it so great. And you know, you're a little annoyed, just deal with it. And when they leave or go to sleep, that's when you, you know, maybe want to go over what they did. You could, or sometimes you could leave it the way it is and do it with them, but it empowers a child. And that's the beginning of resilience because the child develops confidence And, you know, and then the business about, you know, earning money. Children can earn money for doing chores. Why should they be given? And again, I see parents that are under financial stress that do everything for their kids. I see parents that have money and know how to teach kids. I agree. It's not a money thing. No, no, no. It's a a controlling thing. It's the the mindset. It's a controlling. Parents is to teach our children how to work, how to swim so they they don't drown, how to be good people. Well, how do you accomplish that? How are you able to develop children that are going to grow up into this world with all the uncertainty? Things are changing faster now than they ever did. So if you can't make friends with change, and that's really counterintuitive because our brain's designed to want the same thing to happen again and again. So how do you change that? It's really, it it requires creativity, but children have to learn to believe in themselves, to have confidence in themselves, to understand that they can't control the world. But when something happens, they have to make a decision on how to handle it. And you go through this on, this is when you talk to your kids at the end of the day, what happened in school? What did it make you feel? So what did you do about it? What were your choices? Talk about feelings with children. Parents, you know, sometimes don't do that. Sometimes they do, but that's resilient. And also you can tell your children whatever you want, but what you do is going to have the biggest effect. So children are obsessive about watching their parents. Yes. So you could talk a good game, but if they watch you and see you muttering and bickering under your breath or being miserable (laughs) all the time, that's what they're going to absorb. That's what they're going to take in. I don't care what you tell them. But what do you do with parents that are not resilient themselves? Listen, we both know. 
They what? have to become better. Okay. I'm not saying everybody could be the same. Everybody can't be, you know, uh, Miss Goody Two Shoes. Everything is no. wonderful. Okay, so I want to throw examples. I want to throw examples. I know girls that are very unhappy with their weight. You know, they are weight obsessed, body obsessed. They have children. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to give that kind of attention to children and, you know, make them feel so good all the time when you're so obsessed with your own weight or your own body image. I mean, but you have to get your act together. You're the adult and they're the children. They have no choice. You're they have to be your top priority. One of the interesting things I found when I became a parent so many, so many years ago was I found it made me a better human being because I had to become better. I had to become better in everything. My my character, my consistency. I learned very early. I had to back up what I said. I, I couldn't say one thing and do another. It made me a better person. <laughs> I remember, and this is famous in my family, once... Uh, I was, my, my husband traveled, may rest in peace a lot, and for many years. So I, for those years, I, I was alone with them a lot, and I had to discipline them, and I had to take care of everything. And once I, it became really difficult to get them to go to sleep on time. And I would be exhausted by the end of the day. So once I said it, and, and I just, they said once too often, no, just 20 minutes more, no, just a half. So I said to myself, <clears throat> No, it has to stop. And I told them <laughs> there are going to be repercussions for this. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm telling you. So I thought about it for a day. I told them, remember when I told you to go to sleep and all of you wanted to watch TV for a half hour? I said, well, I'm taking the TV away for six months. Wow. I had to back up what I said. I didn't tell them the punishment right away because whatever leaves my mouth, I'm going to have to do. So I had to think about it. I not only took away their TV, I took away my TV. We had three TVs. But for six months. Are you really telling me you did it for six months? You didn't fold? Wait, but let me tell you the result. And I want to tell you, you have this is how you make yourself a better person. It changes you. I took the TVs. In those days, you didn't hang them on the wall. They were boxes. So I took them. I locked them up in the attic. It Who made carried them your life. I carried them. They were small and I'll never forget. They couldn't believe it, but I became more relaxed. You know, it was difficult in the beginning. I didn't watch the news. I couldn't watch any programs. There were no computers. You know, no, you but what were they doing? Weren't they running around fighting with each other? That's what my kids do. Oh, my and kids they're not watching TV. They're tackling each other. But they, they were involved. You read a book, reading became a big thing. I read to them every night from a book. Um, they had homework. By the time they came home from school, they were so exhausted. But by month four, when, when are we going to get the TV back? I said, six months, six months, six months. So they started to count down. And when the six months were up, I said, okay. I gave them the date. I brought the TVs down and I told them, if you ever hesitate when I tell you it's time to go to bed, we're going to get rid of the TVs. So after that, when they're watching TV, and I had a, a specific bedtime, and by that time, they had to be in bed. They, they got what more time? than an hour of TV. It was uh, 7 o'clock for the younger ones and uh, 7.30 for the older ones. The first time, and from thereafter, I didn't even get a word. I said, it's, if I tell you, <laughs> the kids flew off that sofa, they turned the TV off and they <laughs> ran to brush their teeth and get to bed. And that was the case for the rest of their growing up. And my credibility like went to the moon. After that, and that was my oldest was, was 10, 11. So they were all little, maybe he was 12. And the littlest was, was, uh, was five. After that, when I said things, boy, did they listen. They knew if something came out of my mouth, I didn't just throw out a, a punishment. They had to, this is part of being conscious when you're a parent. They have to know that when you say something, when the word comes out of your mouth, it's as good as done. So I learned, you talk about making yourself a better parent. You, you brought up a mother who 
you know, is not happy with her weight. Nothing else mattered. My own comfort didn't matter. I had to get a message across because I knew, and this happened, there were other things when they became teenagers, but you have to really be a credible force, which means you never raised your voice to your children, you know, when they're growing up. What good is that going to do? As a matter of fact, it was more effective the quieter I talked, the more scared they got. Because if I was that serious, it meant something was coming. And if I remember a a few years down the road, I would say, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to, I'm going to do something you're not going to like. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know? So um, the thing is, I'm going to tell you, the thing is that you were very strong. I don't know how you did it. Maybe it's a generation thing. I can't even tell them they can't have brownies one day. They'll (laughs) nag me until I give them the brownie. And I say, okay, you you were good the last hour. And I give them the brownie. So maybe because I was alone and I I knew that the responsibility was on me. And this was my kids were my whole life at that point. That wasn't working. And I knew I had to get it right. I had to teach them and I had to manage the household. How can I manage the household if I have screaming kids and no discipline? And look, once they get to a certain age, they're going to do what they they're going to make their own decisions. And and really, when they're little is when you have the chance to make the point. Doesn't mean you can't ever change. I remember. uh when when my oldest son was very young and he was very smart and he came home once and I told him to do something. He says, why you're not the boss of me? And he's right. I wasn't the boss of him, but but I'm the boss of this house <laughs> and you're you're in this house. So you have to listen to me. Why? Because I'm your mother. Why? Because you have to have a a reasonable answer and not everything has an explanation, you know, but, but the smarter the kids are, the more they're going to challenge you. Okay. My son tells that to me all the time that I'm not the boss of him. So, but I make the mistake of telling him, yes, I am. So I guess what I'm supposed to you're say not is the, I'm not you're not the boss of him. You're his guardian. You're his, his parent. You're his father. Say, I'm your father. I'm not the boss of you, but I can make the rules. Right. Do people know how hard you had it growing up? I mean, you did have it easy, not growing, not growing up through your marriage. I think that going to Puerto Rico, did you live in Puerto Rico? I had challenges, but I didn't. I remember once one of my cousins told me, oh, my God, you've had such a hard life. And I was fighting with her and I was told I didn't have a hard life. What are you talking about? I did not have a hard life. I said, I have four gorgeous children. I was married to a good man. I said, who doesn't have uh, issues coming up? I have, I've been blessed with everything good. You know, see, uh, that's I, the ideal life coach to me. That is the ideal because, you know, with my mom, people, I know what you mean. People used to tell me, oh, I feel terrible. Your mom is suffering. She's suffering. And I'd get parent. I'd say, she's not suffering. She's not suffering. I was suffering. Thank God. Yeah, you and your son. I was. But when they said she was suffering, I would get so angry at them. And like, she's not. She has everything. She's not a pain. I know what you're saying about that feeling. But yet, I don't have that capacity to um, change my perspective. I don't so easily. It's a habit, Richie. It's a habit. Like I said, there, but we live in a world, things. listen to me, I'm not even going to say community. We live in a world of have nots. You have to say we have everything, but we live in a world of have nots. You can have a big house. You can have a nice car. You can have healthy kids, but yet we live in a world. And again, I'm saying world, not community where everyone just counts what they media, don't have. This is what media teaches us. This is why I don't. I don't partake. I do what I have to do. People are nine times more likely to focus on bad news than they are on good news. That's why all the news shows lead with catastrophes, because it rivets you. It's, it's, a, it's a fact. It's a scientific fact. We are attracted. It's a part of our survival instinct when we pay attention to threats. So if you hear bad news, you focus on it. But what is it doing looking at all this bad news? That's why. Why do you think Facebook meta has the algorithm so that it creates um, uh, divisiveness online? Because people engage more, they stay on there more, and they own you. It's the negativity. 
So know when you're being manipulated. You're not crazy. It makes you tend, the more you engage in, in uh, 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 Instagram, Meta, uh, YouTube, whatever it is. And politics. It's and- playing to your worst inclinations. Your worst. It's making you negative. It's making you angry. It's making you anxiety ridden. It's, it's okay. killing all the good possibilities you have to enjoy life. And it's saying, no, here, let's, let's build up your negativity. Let's change your attitude. And that's what it does. So now all the kids are all on, you know, they're online, they're streaming, they're this, they're everybody in the world is reading all the stuff and you're being manipulated. So if you don't want to be manipulated, if you really want to own, start making observations about the good things. Whatever you focus on is going to grow in your life. If you focus on the good things, it's going to grow. Okay. But now I love what you just said, because it is very true. I mean, we're so divided, everyone, you know, between the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates for children, everyone now is arguing about everything. And everyone has has such a strong opinion on everything. What advice, and you're a wise woman, which is why I'm asking you this, because you you, you basically just answered it, but I'm going to ask it again. How do you get people to come together? How do you advise people that may have family members or friends that differ from them so much that they can't even have a conversation? They can't go out to dinner. They can't socialize. We all, there's a, always a commonality. When you enter a room full of strangers. I already feel this is going to be the best advice I'm going to get. Continue. There's always a commonality. It doesn't matter. You could be from two different sides of the world. You cannot speak the same language. Find a commonality because we all have it. As I said, we tend not to focus on it. We used to be as a country, Americans, we always wanted what's good for the country. We all held common values, whether it's home, art, um, being patriotic, being now, all those have been broken down. People are screaming at us that there's no such thing. Nothing exists. It's all part of the same uh, uh, tech world assault on let's focus on all the negativity. So we see negativity, not once at night with the nightly news, we see it 24-7. If we want to... Because you're saying, what you're saying to me is we see it 24-7 because it pops up on people's phones. We're being manipulated. They can't help, right, they can't help but pick up the phone and see what the phone is telling you. Not, yeah, divide. and not only that, it's, it's everywhere and it's 24-7 and it's deliberately, the algorithms and the news and everything that's being put out there is deliberately put out there to be negative and it skews your view of the world. So the first thing I would tell people is let go of technology a little, use it for work, but know what it's doing to you and shut it off. Second thing is start focusing on what you have in common with somebody because there's always something. I, I, I've had instances in my life where I didn't speak the language. I had nothing in common with the people. I always find something. There's something. There's some human thing that you have in common with. It's a very powerful thing when you think about it. So, okay, what you're saying is so gracious. If we could all learn to be a little bit more gracious, especially me, because, you know, a a huge part of my platform here on this podcast is putting your best foot forward. And I'm always trying to be better. I'm always trying to be better. But yet I find it hard to find the commonality. I always want the commonality that we have in common to be what I want it to be. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're shaking your head. It's not going to be that. So you have to find the commonality, whatever it is. Come from a place of generosity. You can't hold it against people for being what they want to be. Yeah. You You can be what you want to be. You know, it's very hard because, you know, I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and, you know, I'm a very big believer and you know this about me, you know, I don't talk politics a lot on the show, but I do believe America should come first as every other country puts their country first. 
America should come first. That's not to say that we shouldn't help other people, but I think we need to take care of the people that we have first and then go back for the other people. Spend the money on all the homeless people on the streets instead of, you know, spending money on people that are not even, you know, that don't that are here illegally. So, you know, when I even try to, you know, have that conversation, I get by some people shut down or vilified. And, you know, I guess my question is, how do people get so brainwashed that they will choose somebody else over themselves? Because that's what it comes down to me. It's like saying, I'll choose somebody else's family before I choose my own family. I'm choosing another country before I choose my own country. That might be above my pay grade, but I think people have lost perspective. I feel very sad when I see that, that people can't have a discussion. When I was a young, young woman, you know, my 20s, my 30s, even in my 40s, I would love nothing better than to exchange ideas with somebody, especially if it was somebody that believed completely the opposite of me. And it invigorated me and it invigorated the other person. I used to have these discussions with some of my cousins. I used to have discussions with people at work. I used to have discussions. It was safe to do it. And that was what was so great. Everybody could have an opinion. You know, a wise man once told me he never discusses, and this was many years ago. This had to be maybe 15 years ago. He said, I never discuss politics or religion. He was my an mother, old man. My mother, may she rest in peace, used to say that. Politics and religion and taste. You can't dictate any of them. <laughs> I know. I That's the one thing. I, I dictate all of them. It's terrible. Not really religion. But, you know, sometimes you want to have a conversation. You want to exchange ideas and have a conversation with someone. But it becomes so divisive that it's just easier to not have it maybe this day and age. Well, no, we can't stop talking to each other. That's that's terrible. Um, maybe certain permissions could be asked. If if I see that somebody can doesn't have the bandwidth to have an open discussion about politics, I don't discuss. I have to have clear signs from the other person that they can handle differences of opinion. Right. I'm not threatened if somebody believes differently than me. I'm perfectly fine with it. I like to argue on the merits of something. I like to bring examples, but not everybody can do that. Right. You See, know? That's also <laughs> wonderful about you as a life coach. You're very accepting of everybody and what they believe and everything is okay, but you need to be able to have a conversation and if respect everybody else's. But if we can't do that, what are we? If we can't have a conversation, if we can't communicate, if we can't Sometimes people have have had a, a positive effect on me. Sometimes I've learned things in discussions. If you don't talk to people and share ideas, how can you grow as a human being? How can you learn things about other people? One of the things that fascinates me, and I remember a psychologist told me, oh, that's so interesting. I said, Every single person is different from the next person. There are no two people in the world that are exactly alike. And again, science proves that. They did experiments with identical twins and they had them use computers for six months. Each one had their own computer. And when they switched computers, they had, you know how computers learn what you do. They had trouble with it. Now there were identical twins. It was a fascinating study, but it shows you the brains of the identical twins were different. Who did the studies? So, was it Hitler? I think no, San, Stanford University, or it, it's a famous study. But okay. <laughs> I, I, don't I can't know help but make a joke of out of everything. It's okay. It's okay. But but the point is, every single person is different, and what I find fascinating. And normally people say we're all alike. Everybody's the same. I think that's a terrible thing to say. This is why I respect people. Every one of us is different. Every one of us is different. Well, I don't know many people that think everyone is the same. No, but that's what they teach us. Well, maybe legally with rights. Yes. With you, you know, we're supposed to all same chances. We're supposed to all Mm -hmm. be protected equally in front of the law. Yes, that I get. But that's not what they're promoting. I find it fascinating to get to know people precisely because of that point. 
we're all different. It's so interesting to me to understand somebody. That's if they want to, you know, let themselves open up in that way. I find people fascinating and I have to respect it. I have to respect the differences between people, how we're all so different and, and some things are not predictable. That's why artificial intelligence still has trouble. You know, they can't replicate the way a human being would react because a human being can consider a hundred things at one time, you know, and make a judgment call. People are fascinating. So that gives me more patience, I guess, because I respect the differences. I might think one thing in my head, but I'm not in that person's head. I have to listen to them. I think also part of the gift you have is picking up the intuition of knowing people. I think that you pick up on knowing people a lot easier maybe than other people. Cause I've been through a lot of different, you know, therapists and psychiatrists and coaches granted you're my cousin, but still you have, you know, what I was thinking, you knew how I felt your intuition was very good. You know, I, I talk about it on the show too, that Brad and I went for couples counseling many times. And we found one who completely in the very first session, completely understood our cultural backgrounds and how that's interfering. And I, we never even thought of it because we were already together for seven years. So now she's bringing it in. And why is this now an issue? And, you know, she's probably not probably, I know for sure she's retired now. Uh, Arlene Novak, she was actually an excellent couples therapist and um, she helped us a lot. But I find that you have that intuition that is a gift of kind of, you know, some people. Maybe because I've met a lot of people, but maybe because I'm very interested. It's not it's not passing to me. I'm very interested in getting to understand the person I'm speaking with. Maybe okay. that's the difference. It could be. So before we wrap it up, because, you know, we do have to go. But I want to tell people, you know. We are first cousins, your mom and my dad, brother and sisters, you know, you're older than I am. I remember after my dad, what? Much older than you. Much older. Well, you don't look it. But I do remember you coming over and what people don't know about you is that you have a beautiful voice and you play the guitar so beautifully. And I'll never forget one of the songs you used to always sing because it came out in 1974, which ironically, my, my dad died in 1974. And the song of that time was by Janice Ian was oh at 17. God. Yeah, the song at 17, it was on the radio and you used to come and you would sing it so beautifully and you'd come with that guitar and, you know, you did it for years. The fact that we didn't have a father and you suddenly you and even your brother, but it was you most of the time would always come and visit us and play the guitar. And I remember on Sunday nights, we'd be watching the Carol Burnett show. You'd pop in. And at one point we knew you were coming. We'd look forward to it and you'd come with the guitar. And I have to say, I mean, you were always really very comforting. And I think that based on what I know about you, you're the real deal. When you coach, you coach based on what you really believe in because you took care of these young children. It wasn't just me. I was 10, Rachel was six, and Simon was 11. And you would come over every Sunday night and you'd play the guitar. We'd even see you on weekends. And it was great. I just wanted to reminisce on that. You know, I... uh... I was older than all of your siblings. I remember babysitting for your older brother. Um, also, when he was very, very little, I remember all of you. But was your pain in the ass back then too? Not at all. But your 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 father was very close to me. My mother and your father were very close. I loved him dearly. It was I a, know that a loss. Your mother was wonderful. She was a warm, welcoming person. Otherwise. Uh, you know, if 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 we weren't if I wasn't weren't welcomed into the house, I wouldn't have come. But your your mother was, you know, had a hard time, too. She was very young. She was young. And, and um, you named your first son after my father. Right. Edward is named after my father. Correct. Yes. She's nodding her head for people listening. You know, Anyone? sometimes we deal with with loss in different ways. We want to honor in quiet ways. It somehow soothes our soul a little bit. Well, I have to say, Ellen, you've made such an impact on my life. And it's not, and from what I'm talking now, from the time I was 10 years old, 
I mean, you've always been an impact and you still are. And I love being able to call you when I have certain issues or problems that I'm having. And I always seem to get what I need. It hits the spot. Your advice hits the spot, you know? So thank you. And thank you for coming on the show and for sharing. You were very generous. I thank you for that. You're always a gentleman and um, God bless you. Thanks, Ellen. And thanks for coming on. I can't wait to see you. Bye-bye. Listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com.